Welcome back to Until It's Fixed Season 2. I'm Stacy Dove here with Callie Chamberlain. In our Season 2 of Until It's Fixed, just to recall, our focus is around the health industry and what's working, what's not, and the new ideas and actions that are changing things for the better. Today, we're really going to focus on inclusive care as it relates to health equity. And when we talk about inclusive care, Callie, what, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of the meaning around that specifically inclusive care? It seems intuitive, but I think that um, we should talk a little bit about that to make sure we're all on the same page. I agree. I think there's a lot of ways to think about inclusive care. What I think about is what would it look like for someone to show up in a clinical setting and be fully seen, to be heard, to feel like they belong there, to feel like the specific traditions or rituals that are important to them, whether that's in their spirituality or religion, are incorporated into their care, and how we can really focus on the individual and make sure that you know, we're able to incorporate everything about them into what their care plan looks like at scale. I mean, that's really where I hope the industry can move when I think about inclusive care. Yeah, I love that. I really like those thoughts, you know, and and today specifically, we're going to focus on the LGBTQ plus community. And we have an amazing guest with Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson. You're going to hear some stories from her, both personal and professional, that are um, very enlightening. And it will really kind of reflect how far we need to go and how far we've yet to go. Yeah. Dr. Dustin Nowoski will also be joining us for the second part of the interview. He also is such a powerful storyteller, such an incredible advocate in the field doing really important work. And so just to pause really quickly to make sure we're all on the same page with what LGBTQ plus means, LGBTQ plus references the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. The plus makes it an umbrella term with a host of other identities, such as intersex, asexual, or aromantic, and people who might not even have a label. So when we reference that term in today's episode, this is the community that we are referencing. Thank you. I think that we all needed to uh, get grounded in the terminology. And with that, um, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Wilson. Sounds good. Real quick warning to our listeners that today's episode does deal with sensitive topics and stories, but we won't be focusing on just that. Let's dive in. This was about a year and a half ago. I was out of the country um, in South America. I had left on a Sunday, arrived on a Monday morning. And on Monday morning, um, I got a call my phone went off and it was my wife calling from Houston, Texas. She had fallen while playing um, racquetball and had shattered her shoulder into six fragments. And all I heard when I picked up my phone was my wife screaming at the other end, just screaming my name. And the phone disconnected. She was taken to an emergency room. And with the help of friends, I was able to find what hospital she'd been taken to. And I called the emergency room and I said, this is Dr. Wilson. I'm calling because my wife has just been brought in. And I was corrected by the nurse. She said, do you mean your husband? I said, no, I mean my wife. And then she said, well, I can't give you any information. I said, I recognize that I'm a physician, but if you give me your fax number, I will fax across my durable power of health 
um, of healthcare. I'm, uh, you know, durable part of care for, for healthcare. Um, and she said, I'm not giving you the fax number. Um, I'm not interested in that information. And I said, look, if you doubt what I'm saying, I'll fax you our wedding, my, my marriage certificate, just to confirm that I am her wife. And she said to me, I'm not interested. And she hung up. And so I was out of the country in South America. My wife was in the emergency room. I could hear her screaming in pain in the background. And she refused to give me the information. She refused to accept the durable power of attorney for healthcare, which I recognized I had to give, but she just refused to accept it. And the only way I was able to get information, get them to accept those documents, was by calling my attorney in Houston who made the call for me. And so the question is, I offered to send my, the durable power of attorney for healthcare. I also offered to fax my marriage certificate. How many heterosexual couples walk around with a copy of their marriage certificates in their phone? And if that could happen to me, it can happen to anyone. And there are numerous stories like that. You know, Kelly, this story that Dr. Wilson just very vulnerably shared with us is heartbreaking. And um, when we think about inclusive care, this is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, it's really hard to listen to this because I know that these experiences are so common and I just cannot imagine the pain that these communities have to carry when they are seeking help for just their basic physical well-being. Right. So there's often too many negative experiences, as you just said, um, in the LGBTQ plus community um, and dealing with health care. And, um, you know, we actually have a recent Gallup poll that says 5.6% of Americans self-identify as, you know, part of this community. Yeah, it's, it's a problem on two fronts. So one is, you know, the actual health challenges that are faced by LGBTQ plus folks. And those can include everything from disordered eating, mental health, and suicide. But the second thing is the complications of actually getting care in a system that does not always have the knowledge to adequately, appropriately serve this community and their needs, and can sometimes feel unwelcoming or discriminatory, even when it's not intentional. I also just want to add that um, 24% of transgender people reported that they had to teach their medical providers about the care that they needed, and 23% avoided medical care because they were worried that they would be mistreated due to their gender identity. Those statistics are very sobering. So now let's shift gears a little bit. We're going to hear from Dr. Wilson again, where she'll give her perspective as a physician and expert in this space, and she'll take us a little deeper into the topic. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. My name is Dr. Margaret Wilson. I've been very honored to serve as the Associate Chief Medical Officer for United Health Group. In that role, I work with the um, Chief Medical Officer and the Medical Affairs team to partner with our clinical leaders across United Health Group. And this is really working not just with the clinical leaders, but the business leaders to advance our mission. And our mission at United is really very simple. It's all about helping people live healthier lives. And it's also about helping healthcare systems work better for everyone. Um, on a personal note, which I think is relevant to the topic that we're discussing today, 
I am a lesbian. I'm married to a lesbian. We're both African immigrants, African Americans, and um, we've been in the United States now for over 20 years. This is what we call home. Thank you so much for sharing that. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Um, so as I shared briefly, I work with clinical leaders across our business. And really, what we try to do can really be broken down simply. For those of most people are aware that United Health Group is probably one of the most broadly diversified healthcare companies. And so as we work to support the people that we serve, for us, it's really about um, four things. We work to make sure that all the people we serve have access to healthcare, regardless of who they are, what status groups they belong to. And not only that they have access to healthcare, but that they also have access to healthcare that's affordable. And healthcare that will produce the best outcomes for each particular individual. And also that will provide them with the best experience as they engage the healthcare system. So you mentioned, um, I think one thing that will be very helpful for our listeners is your perspective, not only as a physician, but also as a lesbian and African-American. I mean, you've got a lot of experience with the LGBTQ community, and I think it would be helpful for you to share with our audience, you know, why is it so important to you and why should we all care? about, you know, the inequities and disparities within um, the LGBTQ community in healthcare. When we talk about healthcare transformation, care for patients cannot simply just be about treating a disease or their disease. Healthcare truly has to be about meeting the unique needs of each person and population. And as we think about the LGBTQ community, there are gaps within that community that really need to be addressed. You know, I'll share a couple of interesting statistics. If we think about the LGBT community, we find that members of that community are twice as likely to have behavioral disorders, mental health disorders. They are three times more likely to suffer from depression or substance abuse. LGBTQ young adults are four times more likely to attempt suicide. Members of the LGBT community, particularly the women, are more likely to have chronic conditions such as heart attacks, asthma. And when you look at the transgender population, they're more likely to report poor health. What is also more concerning, which is an additional layer that I think is really important to recognize, is that for many LGBTQ individuals, simply engaging the healthcare system is traumatic. And this is where I think that there is significant opportunity to address some of these issues. Just the fear and anxiety that comes with engaging the healthcare system, which is often reinforced by the way they are treated. The data shows that they're more likely to be refused healthcare services, more likely to perceive themselves as being harassed by healthcare professionals, 
more likely to complain about the hostility, the lack of empathy, the bias. And this cuts across all socioeconomic brackets within the um, LGBTQ community. Um, you know, I think those are definitely issues that um, and concerns that bring this to the forefront. And for many of us, including myself, we do have, you know, personal experiences and stories to share in that space as well. We've talked about some of the disparities and your own personal experience. Why do you think some of these things exist within the medical setting? You know, one of the things that I will say, first of all, is I don't believe that any of this is intentional. I do believe, I come from the school of thought where I believe, and, and I think the evidence supports this, that unconscious bias is a really powerful motivator of socially unacceptable behavior. I also think that the lack of information, right? I, I hesitate to use the word ignorance because it's it can be perceived as offensive, but I do believe that there are knowledge gaps around the whole concept of individuals being anything other than heterosexual. And I think unfortunately, the knowledge gaps and the unconscious bias have come together historically over several decades to drive pretty hostile, socially unacceptable behavior by several individuals, communities, and a lot of this has become institutionalized. This is not to say that there are not people who are obviously and aggressively homophobic and transphobic. Um, and then the third piece is really around unfamiliarity. People generally feel uncomfortable around people who are different, particularly when you've had no prior experience. And then when you bring it into the healthcare industry, for similar reasons, if you look at several curriculums, be they undergraduate in medical school, postgraduate as part of our training, there has not really been a robust effort to educate and train healthcare providers. Um, and you see that bleeding into the research space where even the clinical research that would have helped to mitigate some of those misguided social perceptions about the LGBT community, even that research, I think, um, is not as robust as it could be. And I think what, you know, the other piece is it becomes even more challenging for LGBTQ individuals who stand at the intersectionality. So not just one minority status group, but a couple. So African-American gay men, for example, um, I think that's, that's a challenge. And, you know, I, I think, you know, overall, when you, the, the other, the other piece that drives this, you know, these disparities are, you think of many members of this community, they're rejected by their peers, they're rejected by their family. They sort of recede into isolation. And there's almost a self-imposed reluctance to engage with any institutionalized systems. And healthcare is one of those. And then, like I think I mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the question of bias is not simply an individual um, issue. It's also institutionalized. So it's all these factors coming together. And that really does paint such a complex picture for us. So thank you for diving into all of those different facets. I'm wondering what you think are some of the solutions, some of the bright spots that you might be seeing that give you a lot of hope for this population. I think the first bright spot is the fact that we're actually having a conversation. 
right? And that has not been the case for a while. Certainly the issue has been spoken about and audiences have been spoken to, but we actually feel that this is now a societal conversation. This is an ongoing discourse in the public space. And not only that, it's a transparent and honest discussion that brings with it vulnerability and authenticity. And, you know, intentionally working towards mitigating disparities that impact minority status groups, be they LGBTQ or other status groups, and doing this in a way that can actually be objectively measured, driving towards specific outcomes. And then education, education, education. One Optum Health, which is um, part of United Health Group, um, has recently put together a training for providers that speaks to um, challenges associated with LGBTQ care. Um, it's going to be in two modules, but the first module focuses on the fundamental, you know, the definition of the terms, how to refer, how to engage, how to communicate with members of the LGBT community, what their concerns are, you know, basic fundamentals about the disparities in healthcare um, as I've gone through. And then I think, you know, the subsequent models will then begin to delve more deeply into how do we build care models that truly serve the needs of this community. The other thing that's also been developed by Optum is um, what we're referring to as a Pride 365 Plus kit, which is really um, a, a palette of resources that deal with different aspects specific to the LGBTQ community that really help the user deepen their cultural sensitivity and, and competence as it relates to not just broad LGBTQ themes, but also more specific healthcare and wellness issues that impact this community. Dr. Wilson, I'd love to get your perspective on what an ideal scenario would look like for our company one year from now, three years from now, et cetera, in terms of our progress on health equity. I think in three years, as we look back at our efforts around health equity, we would have made an impact in four main domains. We would have improved access for people in minority subgroups, African-Americans, women, LGBTQ individuals, minority subgroups, we'd have improved access. Their healthcare would also be more affordable. We will be recognized as a leader in the space where we are able to assure good outcomes, optimal outcomes for people who seek care within our healthcare space. And I think we would also be able to see that we have done all that while providing a good experience, not just for our patients and other people that we serve, but also for providers who support us in delivering care at the front lines. I have a question about legal discrimination and other laws that might be out there, I realize these may vary state by state, but that protect this community or work against this community in the medical setting? Um, well, I'm not a lawyer, so I'll start off with that first of all, right? And the challenges that are faced by LGBTQ people often rest in the realm of how the laws are applied or perceived to be applied, right? Um, because 
bias very often does exist in spite of those laws. And so I do think that in the legal community, and that's where there's sort of a lot of advocacy as well, efforts continue to ensure that there are safeguards put in place for LGBTQ individuals to ensure that they have those protections that will allow them to engage healthcare systems, for example, and other institutions in a way that's comparable to those of their heterosexual peers. So that is also going on in the legal and regulatory space. I think what we see in the healthcare space is certainly reflective of the status there. I do think, however, that uh, what we continue to do to um, drive an impact is really bring it back to accountability for the individual provider and the individual healthcare system, healthcare facility, their systems and processes, and the way that they should hold themselves accountable for engaging the LGBTQ individual and community. I'm very inspired, and I'm sure you are too, Kelly. You know, just to hear you, Dr. Wilson, talk about your passion, and you make us believe and have faith that we can get there. Um, So thank you for the inspiration and for sharing all of your knowledge. So we're going to switch gears a little bit, and um, we've got a couple of more personal questions for you. What is giving you hope right now? People. Actually seeing people change, more open to listening, more open to honesty and transparency. Just people. Did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, the world is a small place. Countries are interdependent. We can no longer afford to ignore our neighbors. What's something that you're currently rethinking or reconsidering? I'm not sure if it's rethinking or reconsidering, but my unconscious bias, my unconscious bias, I keep it at the forefront every day. It's always in my mirror, my unconscious bias. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for your authenticity, your vulnerability, your honesty, and sharing everything that you you did with us today. Stacey, Kelly, thank you so very much for having me today. It's really been an honor and a privilege to be able to spend time speaking about this with you. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Dr. Wilson for sharing all of her very personal insights and for being so authentic. You know, she's one of those incredible ambassadors um, who really, really cares deeply about people and is an amazing representative of the LGBTQ plus community. She was so amazing. I really appreciate her vulnerability. I think, um, unfortunately, that's such an important component of just making sure that we all understand what the lived experiences are for this community. And it makes me feel so hopeful that she's doing the work that she's doing And also grateful because there's so many changes that need to happen. And I do think the people who are shaping the system and also need to go home and protect themselves from it have some of the deepest and most profound insights that can get us to where we need to be. Right. You know, just hearing you say people who have to protect themselves from the system like that's that alone is just very startling to hear that. But you're right. That's exactly what happens. Right. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I'm really excited to introduce our next guest. His name is Dr. Dustin Nowoski. He is the founder of Outcare Health. He also is one of those people who is directly impacted by the system and is now leading the charge through his organization to ensure that there's inclusive care for everyone, but specifically the LGBTQ plus community. Dr. Dustin Nowoski, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you. I'd love if you could introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Awesome. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Dustin Nowoski. I am a psychiatry resident at the Indian University School of Medicine, um, and I'm also founder and president of Outcare Health. And I'm very excited to be talking about LGBTQ plus healthcare today and um, what we're doing now um, through my organization across the nation and uh, what we can do better. Incredible. Tell us about Outcare Health. Outcare Health is an organization that I founded when I was a medical student. So we've been around since May of 2015. We're an organization that provides extensive information and resources on LGBTQ plus healthcare. We have a lot of national initiatives, um, some of which include our Directory of Cultural Competent Providers, the Outlist, um, and we also deliver cultural competency trainings. Those things keep us very busy, as I'm sure you can imagine, but we also have a lot of other initiatives like a public resource database, a mentorship program, an OutTalk series, which is a webinar series on diversity and intersectionality. Uh, we have blog posts, we do our own research, um, and we have many other initiatives going on. Wow. I have so many questions already. I want to know what was the driving force behind you starting this organization? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, that actually took a lot of uh, soul searching and reflecting on my end as I was kind of developing these ideas. So, um, you know, I'm born and raised in southern Indiana, rural Indiana, came out when I was really young, experienced a lot of stigma and discrimination, um, and was outcasted by most of my family at the time. It was very hard for me to really know who I was and be authentic. Actually, authenticity uh, scared me for most of my life, um, really up until a couple of years ago um, is when I kind of felt comfortable in my own skin. So much so that I, I feared, um, you know, especially straight people, but I feared really uh, the world because of um, how the world perceived me and was really trying to drive my life and I wasn't in charge. And so I, I went to school and undergrad at USC in Los Angeles, and that was very different. <laughs> it was a much more accepting place, right? Um, and when I came back from medical school um, at Indian University, I saw a huge contrast in how education was being delivered, how the community felt um, in general with each other, but also with cisgender heterosexual communities. I started medical education thinking that I was going to learn all of this LGBTQ plus information and come out um, as a confident queer provider. And I actually uh, saw the opposite. My education mm -hmm. then, and even a lot of the education that's delivered now, um, is very stereotypical and biased and very offensive. At the same time, I was trying to find a doctor that met my own needs and interests, and I couldn't. You know, really, back then, the only thing I could find were blogs. And even those blogs were about five to 10 years outdated. Most people in the LGBTQ plus community, the only way that they could find providers was word of mouth. And so, you know, I was trying to put all these ideas together. And at the time, I was quite frustrated. I was angry with just like the lack of attention. And really, it was stemming from the same problem. And that was that um, 
while people may be friendly um, and absolutely the community is gaining a lot more acceptance, there's still a huge lack of appreciation and awareness of what is going on in the community in terms of stigma, discrimination, and disparities. And I don't think that people are malignant in any way, they're just uneducated. And so I was really seeing that this same theme was playing out in academia, in the community, with myself, with my own circle of friends and family. And that's kind of where OutCare was born. Beautiful. And I love the way that you're describing some of your personal journey and the way that this work has also supported you and the, you know, becoming more of who you are and bringing that into the communities that you serve. Can you give us a little bit of context about what the landscape looks like for LGBTQ care today? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there are definitely pockets in the country, right, that are doing it slightly better than others. But if you look across the whole nation, and if you wanted to get an average, most institutions, whether it be medical education or uh, residency education, or even at the, the hospital um, type system, you often see that there are trainings that are delivered, um, but I call them one and done trainings. So they're typically through diversity, equity, inclusion offices. They're typically education that is about one hour, one or two hours in duration. Um, it is very foundational knowledge. It's important knowledge, but it only scratches the surface. Um, you know, I've attended many, many trainings, um, and I continue to do so because I'm very interested to see how things are shifting. But still, those first trainings um, are very foundational. They are not near enough to be able to provide providers with all the information they need, right, to see the entire population. We know that there are well over five to a thousand different identities within the LGBTQ plus population. There's no way, right, that you're going to be able to treat all these individuals with a one-hour training. Wow. Can you talk about how OutCare is different? Absolutely. So, you know, we absolutely do training, but I will tell you that um, as a physician myself, as someone in the LGBTQ plus community, I have pulled all of these perspectives together to really craft how we deliver our LGBTQ plus healthcare and information. So I can give you a couple examples. So, you know, within my organization, like I said, we do our own academic research. We know that things like terminology and disparities can rapidly change. I myself have seen terminology change within a matter of months. It definitely changes within years. So you do have to have someone that can do the research, right, to stay on top of these trends and see what sticks, what doesn't stick. You also need someone that's a champion within the community so that they understand what's going on at the community level. But then you also need providers that understand that patient perspective. Because a patient perspective and a community member perspective sometimes align. But sometimes they don't. And so you need both perspectives. So we come at it from many different words. I always say that my organization is a multi-perspective, multi-dimensional, because we want to wrap all these things together and, and then deliver our trainings. So, you know, we don't, um, our, my training, I don't define what LGBTQ plus means, right? Because I think that most people in the community do know what that means. We really delve into, you know, what are the disparities? What are the statistics? What is the community saying? And what does the community want? But then what do patients Want? What do they require when they come to the office? And so I always say that, you know, we are very, very comprehensive in how we approach these topics. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those disparities look like and what you are hearing from community members and patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people get in a bubble and they think that the social environment is getting better, right? And I'm, I'm not saying that it's not. There are so many monumental events and historical things, landmarks that have happened for the LGBTQ plus community 
political rights are absolutely better than they were ever in the past, right? But at the same time, all of those changes are micro changes. We still experience a lot of stigma and discrimination across the community at large. And because of that stigma and discrimination, those disparities are still lingering. Wow. Why is the medical industry so slow to meet some of the social changes that you're talking about? Yeah, great question. (laughs) Well, it's a very complex system, right? And if you really boil the healthcare system down, there's systems within systems within systems, right? So I can tell you this as someone who is a young provider, uh, you know, I did not realize this until I started practicing medicine and all the constraints and policies. um, It just, it's multiple, multiple layers. And then you add this patient experience on and that's another layer within itself. So We know, right, that research academia is very slow to translate what they're learning um, from a number standpoint into the community. But there's also that lack of communication. I can't tell you how many times I'm educating my patients on current statistics and numbers, and they have no idea, right? Even though they're experiencing Mm. themselves, they have no idea that their peers and colleagues are experiencing these exact same things. There's a lack of communication within the community, but then also across systems. We have to do a much better job as providers of being able to learn this information, appreciate this information, but then translate that into the care that we're providing. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit as well about some of the intersectionality in identities within this community and how the disparities that you're describing might impact them more or less? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about intersectionality, I think sometimes we focus on social classifications, and that's absolutely very, very important, and that's usually where we start. So when you're looking at intersectionality, you know, looking at um, how someone identifies in terms of their sexual orientation, their gender identity, but then how do they identify in other social classifications? Mm. Does that include race? Oh, absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, if you you segment the population, right, there's, there's... Looking at the population, um, there was a Gallup poll that was just released. I highly talk about this because it excites me in so many levels. Um, So Gallup released data uh, back in February of this year, um, and what they found was that about 5.6% of the U.S. population identifies as LGBT. Um, Now, that's four identities, right? And I just said that there's like 500 to 1,000. So it's absolutely underestimated. But if you look across generations, we know that Gen Z has significantly higher percentage of LGBTQ plus people. It's anywhere from 16 to 30% actually, um, compared Um, to past generations where it's about three to 5%. So the world is becoming much more accepting on many different levels, you know, both sexual orientation, gender identity, but also as we know, right, um, with the Black Lives Movement, there have been so many political social movements that have been needed for a very, very long time. And now we're starting to really put this into a story and say, you know, we shouldn't really be focusing on one specific social classification. We really should be focusing what I call identity-centered care of who is the Mm. person. When I start my visits, I never ask anyone anymore, like, why are you here? I say, who are you? Because that's really Mm. what it boils down to. Absolutely. I love that you went there. I was just going to ask, as a provider, how do you engage with this community in a way that feels different than how other providers might engage with this community? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I always tell people that my care is identity-centered care or uh, humanity-centered care, right? Because at the end of the day, they're a person first, and then there's Mm. all these other layers of what makes that person who they are. And that's how I approach care. You know, I really want to figure out, like, why are you coming to me today versus a year ago versus a year from now? Um, Mm. There's a way to collect this information. But I, I think that the reason why 
a lot of providers don't go there. It's not necessarily the administration or the reimbursements or anything like that. I think it has to do with the lack of education and the uncomfortability that they have. So it is very common that if providers haven't learned something or they haven't practiced it, they just don't go there. And a lot of people mm. don't realize that, right? They, um, you know, I, it's just me and a patient, right? So I have full authority to kind of like ask them whatever I want to ask them, right? No one's watching me, but at the same time, a lot of providers, whenever they know that and something comes up that they've never heard or they internally are uncomfortable with the conversation or topic, they just won't go there. Um, it's a huge disservice um, to really anyone in general, but also the LGBTQ plus community, because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for mm. understanding and they're looking for someone just to listen to what is going on. You know, at the end of the day, most people recognize, right, that um, the way that you live your life and your behaviors, right, is not for everyone. There's no expectation, right, that you're going to have this full-blown conversation and, and laugh and smile. At the same time, they want you to know on some level that they're here to tell you these things for a reason because they're important for a reason and they're looking for a dialogue. Wow. And it sounds like you're healing some of the historical mistrust that has existed within this community in the medical industry as well. Oh yeah, I have um, I have a handful of patients that I am the first provider they have seen in over twenty years, and the reason why is because something bad and negative that happened for me another provider twenty years ago, and unfortunately, the reason why I um, ended up seeing them was because of something bad that happened, and they ended up in the emergency room and they almost died. You know, this is, it affects me on a lot of levels because, you know, this, these are my peers, um, but then also these are my patients and there is no excuse for putting your own biases on a patient, which then leads them to avoid the healthcare system entirely where they may end up dead because of that fear of not wanting to talk about themselves to another provider. Um, you know, I have a lot of patients, too, um, that have come out to me for the first time. And I have a couple that are um, 60, 70 years old. And I'm the first one that they've come out to. And, you know, it's so, you know, I, I can't tell you how many uh, conversations that I've gotten tearful and cried with my patients because it's, it's very impactful. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, not all of them feel that way, right? There's a lot of um, distrust that I have to unravel with most of my patients, but the ones that we're able to break through, it's very, very magical. Wow. Your work is so powerful. You are incredible. I'm so grateful for the work that you do. Um, I'm just thinking, how do we get way more of you everywhere? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's so why OutCare exists. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask. So tell me more about Outlist yeah. um, and some of the work that you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So our Outlist is absolutely one of our most important initiatives that we have through OutCare. Um, so the Outlist is the National Directory of Culturally Competent Providers. We're close to 2,500 providers now across the country, many, many providers. They represent all states in the country and over 50 different specialties. Most of our providers on our outlist are primary care and mental health providers. That does not surprise me because we know that the disparities um, are for those specialties. Um, and so it makes sense that we would just naturally capture most of those providers. But yeah, our providers are vetted on many different levels of cultural competency. But then also when we do our own trainings, we invite those providers to identify themselves on the outlist. So these are providers that are LGBTQ plus culturally competent. It's very important to understand that cultural competency is a dynamic process. It really requires having 
that foundational level, but then also ongoing training of specialized topics, but then also when things change, right? Like I said, like terminology and disparities change so rapidly. So then having that refresher of all of those topics that you've learned every so couple of years, that is not the model right now. Mm. That makes sense. I, yeah, I love the inclusion of the community and kind of informing providers and making sure that it's a holistic and comprehensive design. Can you talk a little bit about your work with Optum? Yeah, yeah. So through my uh, partnership with Optum California, we are leading um, an educational series. Right now it's planned we're going to have four different um, LGBTQ plus trainings that will span all the way from foundational all the way to very specific about intersectionality and minority stress theory. Um, So I'm very excited to be a part of the group. Um, I've met a lot of amazing people and a lot of people that um, are very vulnerable and um, have Mm -hmm. admitted that you know, this is where we want to be, but we are not here yet. And I'm glad to be a part of that partnership and collaboration because that's really the only way that we're going to make changes to to really showcase what we're doing, but then also admit where our gaps are and where we want to be. Mm, absolutely. And how do you think that that will influence the future of the medical field in engaging with this population, potentially even legal rights and just, you know, other things that are preventing and creating some of the marginalization that we've seen historically and that exists today? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to change drastically. I mean, I think um, I'm already seeing the pressure from colleagues um, and peers. You know, they're encountering a lot of patients that are identifying um, with identities that are normal to me, but not to them, right? And they're getting very stressed and confused, and they're they're admitting their faults and their vulnerability and asking, you know, reaching out to my organization, but then also their institutions and saying, we need to do more. Um, so I think th- that's part of the piece that providers are feeling this pressure um, because they're really interacting with a lot of different needs that they never did. And I'm wondering after education, how you see this sort of evolving across the field, like what's sort of next on the horizon within this space? Yeah, something that I hope happens, um, and I'm, I'm seeing this um, on a small scale, but I hope that it happens across the country in the larger healthcare system. To boil it down, the LGBTQ plus population is a unique population, right? We've been talking about stigma, discrimination, disparities that are very unique for the population that are not um, the same for other populations. So on some level, we do need to have the education, the knowledge to be able to provide the most adequate care for the population. At the same time, there is a huge issue with talking about this population as a, quote, specialized population, right? Because it's segregating. You know, if you think about it, LGBTQ plus people are across every facet of life, right? You see them in the grocery store. You see them outside walking their dog, right? We're everywhere. I have a huge issue with us always talking about this as like a side topic. And at the same time, you know, there are LGBTQ plus centers around the world. Um, They serve a huge need. They're very, very valuable for the community. But in a way, that's very segregating. It's kind of like, here's this building off to the side. If you're LGBTQ plus, you go there, If you're cisgender or heterosexual, you go to, you know, the hospital that's supposed to serve the entire community, but it doesn't. And so what I'm seeing, there is a shift in the hospital system, especially, but the healthcare system at large, that they're recognizing that they need specialized expert teams to kind of come into their system and say, you know, we value this. We want to be inclusive. We want to provide the best affirming care in our institution. Amazing. I love that. I wanted to ask you if there's a personal story or a patient story or something that reminds you when work gets really hard that this is important work and, you know, define sort of for you why it is that you do the work that you do. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have so many stories. Um, w- there's one that comes to mind that I think about very often. Um, this this patient had profound depression, anxiety, had used almost every substance, had been in and out of jail, had many, many suicide attempts on, on literally almost every year. And when I started to dissect and pull this back, it really stemmed from being kicked out of his family um, and a family that is very close knit um, and they all get along except when this individual came out um, family, they invalidated this person and didn't believe that he was worthy of anything, um, especially love. And, you know, after kind of pulling back all the layers and I was very honest with this patient that I had been through a lot of the same things. uh, We spent a good session crying together and um, you know, that was about a year ago and this patient is doing very, very well. They have held a job for about a year now. That is the longest they've ever held a job. They are in a very, very healthy relationship. Um, they have been sober for about a year as well. And so all of these things that I think an, another provider could have treated, right? They could have treated all these things separately um, and, and said, here's your script, move on with your day. I recognized that it was stemming from one thing. And that was that, unfortunately, the world is not inclusive of everyone, um, and it can be very, very damaging for years to come. And this person is doing very well. And every time I see this person, you know, we uh, we don't even have to talk for the first couple of minutes because we're just smiling because they're in such a better place than they were. That's amazing. I mean, what you're doing is creating belonging for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's... um. You know, we're all humans, and part of the human experience is human interaction and, and feeling heard and feeling appreciated. And that does not have to be verbal. That can literally just be sitting and acknowledging and looking at someone in the face and giving them that glance of, you know, we're both humans and we're in this together. Thank you so much for being here. I am so grateful to have you. We are going to wrap this up by doing a lightning round. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions really quickly, and then I'd love to just get some quick responses. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay. Awesome. So the first one is, what drives your passion for what you do? My patients. Absolutely my patients. Seeing that progress and development. Absolutely. Name one person who's inspired you or had the biggest impact on who you are today. Oh my goodness. It would absolutely have to be Lady Gaga. Just the, the way that she expresses herself and her openness and her communication um, and not caring what other people think about her. She's an amazing human. What is giving you hope right now? Out care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, seeing the change that we're making and we get emails all the time from people in the community that are thanking us and letting us know that they found a provider on our organization or they attended one of our talks. You know, it's it's rare for providers to get feedback and um, we get that feedback through my nonprofit and that keeps me going. You know, every time I'm like right before bed and I, I look at my email and we get another response from someone in the community, I just light up. And finally, what's something that you're currently rethinking or reconsidering? You know, I don't know. I don't think I'm rethinking anything right now. I don't have any regrets. I'm someone who um, believes that, you know, I'm here for a reason and I can craft that narrative. Um, And, you know, there are negative things that happen all the time to people, but I'm someone who looks beyond those things and looks forward to the future and wants to build on those things in the past. 
Wow, Stacey, that was such an incredible interview with Dr. Nawaski. I just keep reflecting on his comments about the representation and really how he has taken his personal experiences and turned it into something so powerful that impacts so many people. And it just makes me grateful to have both him and Dr. Wilson being able to lead the field, support people, and really set the tone for what should be expected in a care setting. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, with Dr. Nawaski, um, OutCare, his organization, um, teamed up with Optum for accredited training sessions on providing best possible care for LGBTQ plus patients. So that training was provided to clinicians and staff that provide patient care. So super helpful, interesting, and more than anything, you know, really the LGBTQ plus community needs to have providers who understand them. And so um, with that said, if anyone is interested in OutCare, you know, you can, you can actually find culturally competent providers on what's called their OutList. And if you are a provider, you can join the OutList by um, filling out certain criteria. So OutList is an online nationwide directory of healthcare providers who identify as culturally competent in the care of LGBTQ plus community. So very, very helpful uh, resources that Dr. Nawaski is providing our entire country. Awesome. So we will include all of the information for how providers can access LGBTQ plus training resources, as well as some terminology and instructions on how to act as an ally from Pride 365 plus in our show notes. Make sure to check those out and come back next time because we're going to be talking about digital inequities that exist within the health system. For some people, especially in the wake of the pandemic, going digital was a huge convenience. And for some people, it was actually inaccessible. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that episode. This is Until It's Fixed. I'm Stacy Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. Thanks for listening.